0: Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for April the 2nd, 2023, focusing on Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, Making an Entrance. Today, the part of David Cassidy will be played by Nikki Hardiman.
1: I'm David Cassidy. And today,
2: the part of Daniel Glaze will be played by Crystal Shepard. I'm Daniel Glaze. And today... The part of Burt Montgomery will be played by Burt Montgomery.
0: And I'm Burt Montgomery. <laughs>
1: Well, faithful listeners, as you can tell, you have an unusual cast today. Daniel Glaze and David Cassidy both are gone, and so the rest of us shall play. (laughs) We are the ones who tend to bring the chaos to the podcast, and we have no one to counter that chaos today.
0: There are no adult supervisors today.
1: That's right. no adult super supervisors today. Yes. <laughs> so, but we are here talking about the Matthew text. It is Palm Sunday. And so I imagine that many of you will be celebrating in your congregations, waving palms. and And because David always makes us ask a question, do either of you have memories of Palm Sunday that are special or anything that you do on
2: Palm Sunday, typically? One of my favorite memories of Palm Sunday is so in the last two churches that we've been in, and since I've had kids, mm-hmm. we always had, you know, would wave palms. Like the church I grew up in, we didn't do that. But in the churches that we've been in since we've had children, they wave the palms. And I've always loved seeing the kids with the palm leaves. Mm-hmm waving the palm leaves, coming in, singing and watching my kids get excited, sometimes like smack each other with the palm leaves. You know? <laughs> so I think that's, that's probably my favorite thing about just the joy that's there in on Palm Sunday mm-hmm. and seeing the kids light up and getting to participate in such an, you know, it's such an important thing to be able to wave a palm as a kid, right? right? right. So Absolutely. it's just nice to see the joy on the kids' faces. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I am the same way. You know, I don't recall ever being a part of a liturgical Palm Sunday service growing up, because in Baptist life, especially in Louisiana, you didn't want to do anything that looked like the Catholic. So, you know, nothing. (laughs) Although it was mentioned that as you read the text, but and get ready for you know the crucifixion the next week and the resurrection I don't recall but it, it's it's by serving on church staffs as youth minister as pastor with kids and having kids myself participate in that and the, it allows for a moment of joy and and this, you said spontaneity kids hitting each other with the palms right but the the kids get to to yell and to chant and mm-hmm. Hallelujah Hosanna and some of them chant their own things and it's fun <laughs> because you know even in those churches that tend to be very reverent, mm-hmm. and children taken out eventually mm-hmm. to keep the s- silence. It's just a moment of pure fun, letting yeah. the kids own the service for a moment. And yeah. that's my memory. I mean, I remember my kids doing that in church too, and it's it's great.
1: I have vague memories of growing up and waving palms. We did that at my church, but it wasn't, It was. it was just a I do remember having joy and waving the palms. And then, of course, the same as y'all. It is a chaotic moment in the life of the church that is sanctioned. And I would always advocate for as many sanctioned chaotic moments as possible. But today we are going to be looking at this text in Matthew. And Bert, I think you are getting us started. So can you get us going today?
0: I will. Again, the text is Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. It was a great moment of of religious fervor, religious zealotry even. People gathered, hopeful, rowdy people had lined up on both sides of the road to see their hero heading in for a big showdown. Cheers. Screams, clapping, stomping, hands reaching out desperately to touch, trying to reach the hero as he passed by, palms waving. I'm sorry, did I say palms waving? I, I meant to say pom-poms waving. I still remember it just as if it was yesterday. It was 20 years ago, November 2002. My two young sons and I were standing among the screaming fans lined up just outside Commonwealth Stadium in Lexington, Kentucky, to cheer on the Kentucky Wildcats football team as they entered the stadium for their game against the Southeastern Conference foe and defending national champions, LSU Tigers. My son Rob was one of the lucky ones whose outstretched hand was rewarded with a high-five slap from the Wildcats' big-boy hero quarterback, Jared Lorenzen. Kentucky Wildcat fans were tired of being pushed around underdogs in SEC football, and they genuinely felt they may have finally had a team and a leader who can begin to push others around the field for a little bit. And when they were ready, and they were ready to witness their hero, the hefty lefty, as he was known, Jared Lorenzen, lead their team to a huge victory, an enormous national upset over LSU. The, did I say they were the defending national champion, LSU Tigers? Because LSU, along with like one other team in the SEC, have always pushed everyone else around. Fans of both teams still talk about that game 20 years ago. Kentucky lost that game to LSU, but only when time ran off the clock with a now legendary, absolutely bizarre, totally chaotic Hail Mary pass. Do an internet search for LSU Kentucky Bluegrass Miracle sometime, and you'll see what we mean. Half the Kentucky fans were pouring onto the stadium while the game was still going on in the other end of the field. It was bizarre. The people of Jesus's day had been waiting for and longing for a hero to lead their people in a victorious uprising against the enormous bully, the Roman Empire. Rome had been pushing everyone around for what seemed like forever, and it had finally began to feel as though God had sent them this hero they needed, to the underdogs, who would allow them to push the Romans around for a change. And here comes Jesus, riding into Jerusalem, just as the prophecies of old had said the Messiah would, on the colt of a donkey. Riding into Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the great city, the center of the life for the nation of Israel, the home of King David, the religious, economic, cultural, political capital of that old nation would soon be restored to glory. It was a moment of great religious fervor, zealotry even. People, hopeful Rowdy people had lined up on both sides of the road to see their hero heading straight into the big showdown with the powers that be. Cheers, screams, clapping, stomping, hands reaching out desperately to touch the hero as he passed by. Palm-poms waving. I'm, I'm sorry, did I say pom-poms? I mean palms waving. But in less than one week's time, Jesus is going to lose. Worse than that, Jesus isn't isn't even going to put up a fight. He doesn't even appear to try to win. Heck, Jesus refuses to put on the uniform of the team and even play in the game. And the cheering masses soon turn against him. Faster than fans can boo their star quarterback after a few bad games, faster than a governor's political allies, a senator's political allies, a president's political allies will distance themselves or throw their former champion under the proverbial bus. In less than a week after being greeted with the fanfare reserved for the greatest victory heroes of all time, even Jesus's own followers abandoned him and ran and hid in defeat. It seems so many of us in our churches today are still longing for a political. Military, cultural, forceful Messiah to march into our places of power, to march into our arenas that can hold thousands of cheering, rabid fans, to march into our state capitals, to march into our nation's capitals, kick butt, take names, and let our specific brand of Christianity start pushing everyone else around again. We've done this before, and it never works out well, for all the other people that Scripture tells us are also God's children. We wave our Bibles and our Christian flags with such religious fervor and zealotry. We'll cheer and scream the name of Jesus at at stadiums filled with grand speakers, and yet Jesus still refuses to suit up and play this game with us. We are convinced that Jesus is for the winners. That Jesus is for the bullies. That Jesus is for those who grab them by the power, just as he did two thousand years ago. Jesus is still with those who are the outcasts, with those who are the poor, with those who are the houseless, with those with diseases, those who are sick, those who are cast out, those who are dehumanized. Anyone who has laws passed against them, that's where Jesus is. We think that when we've done it for the most powerful, the most important, the most visible, the most triumphant, the most victorious, then we are doing it with Jesus. But unfortunately, Jesus says, when you've done it unto the least of these, everyone you deem less than yourself, then you are doing it unto me. This is a tough question. The, the triumphal entry in the week to come leading up to the crucifixion is a, raises all sorts of questions about our motives, about our faith, and about what and who we want Jesus to be compared to who Jesus is. The, the Christian artist, the Christian rocker from the 1980s and 1990s, Steve Taylor, once asked, Jesus is for losers. So, why do we still play to the crowd?
1: Bert, thank you so much for that really helpful and wonderful introduction. As I was listening to you and then thinking about our conversations about what we remember and enjoy about Palm Sunday, I always think it's so interesting that we do get our children to get up and wave the palms. And yet, This was a protest by Jesus. This was, or at least it was, a political demonstration against the Roman Empire. And so I don't know if it's that we get the children to do it because grownups just won't wave palms in the service unless they're working with the children, right? Like, I like to work with the children because I enjoy doing those things. And so I want an excuse to wave palms, Or maybe it's that children can't understand, or we think they can't understand the political nature of what Jesus is doing. Or maybe it's that we don't want to look at that part, which I imagine probably is a lot of the reason that we get the kids to do it. But it occurred to me that there was such a contrast between how we're talking about this passage and how we celebrate that so often in our congregations, and don't hear me saying that I don't want children waving palms. I absolutely want children waving palms. I think we should teach them how to speak their mind on various issues early. I am very much an I do that with my children, but maybe
2: maybe there's a reason to get all the adults involved. You know, I don't think I don't think the adults understand the political nature maybe of what you're Jesus probably true. I really don't like. I, I don't think I understood it until much later after going to seminary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think Same. we have this idea. Like, I, I really like Bart, what you pulled out about, like how we want Jesus to be, but that's not how Jesus is. And I think like we want Jesus to be this suffering martyr that's riding this donkey in. Look how humble he is. I mean, and he is humble. I mean, like yes, but like. We're not looking at how radical was it for him to ride this donkey mm-hmm. into Jerusalem, knowing what was waiting for him, and all these people laying down their cloaks, waving the palm, like that was a a major political statement that had to have like Rome sitting up and taking notice and going, what the heck's going on, and so. I think as adults, we don't really want, I shouldn't speak for everyone, but I think a lot of adult Christians get really uncomfortable with this type of political Jesus. Mm -hmm. There's this other very vanilla suit wearing political Jesus, narrow features, you know, very whitewashed that we're comfortable with but we're not comfortable with this grassroots subversiveness of Jesus. And I think if we allow ourselves taking the chaos that is Palm Sunday, allow that to like really seep in and go, wait, how do I need to be looking at Jesus? What was he really doing here? And how does that inform If if I say I am a Christ follower, how does that inform what I do now?
1: Okay, so everybody, I want to make sure that you understand why we're talking about this as an act of political demonstration. Quite often, a few days before the Passover each year, Rome would demonstrate their dominance. And they would do that by having an official, it might have been Pilate, it might have been somebody else, who would ride into Jerusalem on a war horse just a few days before Passover. Because Passover is that celebration of Israel's freedom from Egypt, freedom from slavery in Egypt. And so by riding in on a war horse Rome was demonstrating that they have dominance and saying, you might have been saved from enslavement from Egypt, but we're in charge and you better remember it. And that was the act that was being taken by the Roman government at the time. So when Jesus rides in on a donkey, it is a direct response to Rome's act of in. En- of demonstrating their power. And so Jesus walks rides in on this do- donkey in part mocking what Rome is doing and also claiming that the God of Israel is the one with the power and that the Israelites are indeed free. And so that is in large part this is this is scrappy Jesus. This is Jesus being scrappy and speaking through action to the Roman government. And the people who were there would have recognized Jesus's act as an answer or a response to Rome's action.
0: Oh, and it, it certainly built up to the, 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 the confrontation that would come at the end of the week with Herod and with Pilate, mm-hmm. especially with Pilate, because Pilate, right. you know, Herod was the Jewish governor. But, but with Pilate, it, it was a Roman decision. Crucifixion could not happen without Roman power, right? And and this added fuel to to Jesus's enemies, for lack of a better word, for for the Jewish leaders who had made their bed and gotten comfortable with the Roman Empire, Mm -hmm. to say, "Look, he is a direct threat to you. He is right. you, You are not the Jew. Rome is the Caesar is not the king of the Jews. You, he thinks he is. So this was a direct fuel for them." For his enemies within among the religious leaders mm-hmm. of his own people to, to use against him with Rome and to fuel that. But it also it enlivened the people who felt like hey, we're going to get, and, and and Jesus did. And this is the hardest thing for me because I get riled up and I, I'm all about advocacy. I'm all about action. I'm all about justice. Is that Jesus doesn't play the political empire game with his own people.
1: mm mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, the zealots, I mean, there was a a Simon, one of the disciples, Simon was a zealot. They were basically homegrown terrorists. I mean, they would, you know, they would stab people in the Mm -hmm. street, even even fellow Jews who were too comfortable, Jews in name only, you might say today, right? Too comfortable with the powers of the Roman powers. Simon was a zealot. So the zealots are seeing this and getting excited. The common people who have been oppressed forever are getting excited about this. But yet, even still, Jesus is not going to... Be a, another empire ruler with, fi- with you know, mm-hmm. sword and with military mm-hmm. might, because it just creates more. And this is this is the hardest thing for somebody like me to wrestle with is how do we engage our world with and engage politically? Because politics is simply the distribution of power among people. That's all politics is, yeah. and or do we control it among a few people, uh, or do we allow it to be dispersed among many, which means you get less done and it's more chaotic. But how do we create change? How do we advocate for the least of these, especially as every day there's some new laws creating a new group of least of these in our society right now, whether it's LGBTQ, whether it's women, whether it's people of color, whether it's what, w- religious groups, whatever – how do we do this, and how do we try to seek laws that protect them rather than alienate them? This week, this the, the week of Holy Week for me, gets more and more complicated each year of, of life as our reality of our life. Because this, just as you mentioned, it reflects—it happens at Passover, so that reflects a, a moment of history when Jesus— when I'm sorry, when God intervened and acted on behalf of a violently oppressed people against a violent empire. Mm-hmm. Now this is happening again in Jesus's time with a violently oppressed people in the real world where people could be, disappear from the streets. Children can be taken from their mothers by Roman soldiers. Right. Horrible things happen all the time. It's good to be a Roman. Eh, Well, you know, maybe you should have just not argued with the Roman officer and you'd still be alive. That happened all the time Mm
2: -hmm.
0: in that context. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is being celebrated by the the outside masses, the oppressed people, but he refuses to take up his sword and play the violent empire game. Like, oh, we'll take charge now and then you'll be the the oppressed people you'll be the people we push around. how do how do we do this in today's society when it is the church as a whole, Christian tradition as a whole I, I, y'all understand what I'm saying in name of Christianity in the name of God in the name of Jesus mm. this nation for white men has done horrendous things for 200 years, more than 200 years to everybody else and now we think we're losing power. and we've got to fight back. I mean, how does this is complicated stuff. I have no answers. Maybe y'all in your Sunday school classes and groups that are talking about this will come up with ways of what this means, but I feel like this is very relevant for our moment in history right now.
2: I think it goes back to everyone having a seat at the table. Yes. I really do, because when you were talking about that, I'm like, but there were all sorts of people— that Jesus called, and they were all sitting at the table with him. And I just think about that, like, even the person who was going to betray him was sitting at the table with him, oh. and he washed that person's feet. And so I think there's something instructive there for us.
0: So he had, he had a zealot? Mm-hmm. And he had a tax collector who were mortal enemies <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: at the table, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Because the tax collector could have been stabbed with a shiv at any moment in a crowd right. in Jewish streets by a zealot.
2: Because
0: mm-hmm. he had made his peace and was taking from his own people to give to Rome. And they were both at the table. Like Will Campbell, who marched in streets and and with with Martin Luther King Jr. and was chased out of this, his home state of Mississippi for his work for integration during the segregated times as a white Baptist preacher. But toward the end of his life, he hid Klansmen on the run who had turned FBI evidence to save their own skin against fellow Klansmen. Right? Mm-hmm. They were on the run from their own people, and he hid them at his his place and help get them to safety because if you love one, you got to love them all. So here was Will Campbell, who at the same time would take a Klansman in his house, as well as a black man in his house and bring them to the table together. That's a power. I never thought of it that way, Crystal, but Mm -hmm. yes, Mm -hmm. everybody gets a seat at the table. And that is what I'm struggling with right now because it's so hard to allow a seat at the table with some people. This is the tough question. And again, there's no answer. It's always been the case. And many of us have lived through just battles over the last 50 years that this has been the case. And we see it happening now in politics and in churches. There are those who will get to the table with us. We may get to the table, but we are not going to give, period. End of statement. And we will only remain there to make sure nobody goes much further. Apart from us, and how how it's how do you this is messy stuff, people. The gospel God, oh, gone it. It would be so much easier if Jesus just grabbed the sword and took up the fight, wouldn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. It would it would I think part of the thing that complicates it for us today is in Jesus' time, Jesus and the religion, Judaism, the religion with it within which he was operating was oppressed. And that's not the case for Christianity in our nation today. Christianity, is are we still the largest religion in our country?
0: I know that they're, yeah,
1: yeah, non-Catholic. So, and. and uh,
0: uh, Okay. Yeah. 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 Christianity is still the largest in the, Catholic and Protestant.
1: Absolutely. So, so we, we have, so much more power than Jesus and the religion within which he operated had at their time. So that is a very distinct difference. It it gives us power, whereas the person that we follow was a part of a community that had no political power, and they had to learn how to be faithful in the midst of that. I think learning to be faithful when you have all the power is much more difficult because yeah. we have so much to lose. Yeah. In order to be faithful as a Christian in America right now, you have to be willing to give up privilege. Mm. You have to be willing to give up privilege. That is the call mm-hmm. to us in this space. And the and I am with you, the other reason it's complicated for me is I have found myself asking the question, how do, like, you know, all y'all come? I am very much an advocate of everyone is welcome. And how do you welcome everyone when there are people in the room that deny the dignity of somebody else in the room?
0: Yeah.
1: How do you do that? I think and i had never thought of this before you guys until you ju- crystal just started talking about it but you're right simon and matthew before they got a part of the disciples they would have been mortal en- enemies mm-hmm. like they just they maybe not mortal enemies but they definitely would have been on different sides of every issue
0: no mortal enemies because simon a zealot would have that's true, yes. They easily have killed a tax collector. Or yes, tax yes.
1: Collector. And so, so I don't know that I'd ever known how to answer that question that I had about how, when there's somebody who denies the dignity of another, how do you welcome everyone to the table? But maybe there is more in Jesus's story that can teach us how to do that.
0: I just watched a, a documentary. Now, it's, a, it's about two or three years old, I think, but a, a documentary on former President Jimmy Carter. And there's a moment in there when they talk about the Camp David Accords, and and some of our listeners are old enough to remember this. Most of y'all are not, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, I guess. But when when Carter was determined to bring peace to the Middle East, and this is in the 1970s, and, and, and Egypt and, and Israel, or, I mean, it, it was just... But the the Arab nation, the the nation of Israel that it was at that point, the political nation of Israel was just 30 years old, right? Post-World War II. And there were just incredible tensions. And of course, the the, the level of hatred Mm. of each one that wants to destroy the other. Mm -hmm. He sat in a room for a weekend or a week, took the leaders of both countries to a room with translators, and they sat together. For a week. And he let them yell at each other and all the stuff. But then he begins to talk to each of them because he had formed trust with both of them, which is hard to do Mm -hmm. for anybody with your enemies, right? Mm -hmm. Political enemies to have somebody that trust that both sides will trust. He had formed trust with both sides and he begins to iron out some things to validate each other's vested interest while at the same time allowing not allowing one to cancel the other one out until, at you know, he had an agreement that brought peace to the Middle East, which successive presidencies then just destroyed for our own political advantage. But it was a powerful moment. And I remember watching that thinking, wow, that when you said, when you said being at a table with someone else who denies the the dignity of your existence or how – did not, whatever the phrase you used, it can be done. Yeah. And it is the only way to go to help us understand our our common humanity, our common life as children of God. In this case, common ancestors of father Abraham.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's how we use our power. That's how we, that's how we, if you look at what you were saying about, former president Carter, like he used his power and his influence. And if we're going to, to give up some of our power, if we're going to use it in a way that is helpful, then I think that's, that's, that's the groundwork there. That's, that's where we start. That's the bare minimum we can do is helping everyone get to the table, helping everyone have an equal voice um, especially you know, amplifying those voices that that need to be amplified. I don't know it, how it gets done, that's not for me to figure out. Ho- hopefully, you know there's people that are that are much smarter and better versed than me to be able to do that. but I, I think that we start by by being trustworthy and by being kind and loving enough that a person who's a clansman, And a person of color could come to our home and sit at our table together. Like that just to me is amazing. Are we that kind of people as Christ followers? I think that's the call.
1: Well, thank you both for this really wonderful conversation today. We may be a little more chaotic than when we have David and Daniel here, but I think we have had a really wonderful conversation, and I have felt challenged by the conversation. And I hope that our listeners do too. I'm a little different than than David, so I'm not going to leave you with a quote, Rather a question to ponder this week. Who, during this holy week? can you sit at the table with to begin to develop trust and kinship? Who can you sit with this week? Thank you both for this wonderful conversation.
0: Learn more about our Faith Element Bible Study Curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.